Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Let's open up our, uh, our Bibles uh, up on the uh, overhead also to 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 8 to 24. Um, this is Mother's Day, and that's the reason for the choice of this text, and it was made by Pastor Max Carell. He's the one that told me to preach on this text. This is the Word of God, and it is eternally true. Then the Word of the Lord came to him, this is Elijah, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please, get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. As she was going to get it, he called to her and he said, Please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar. And behold, I am gathering a few sticks, that I might go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Then Elijah said to her, Do not fear. Go, do as you have said, but make me a little bread cake from it first, and bring it out to me. And afterward you may make one for yourself and for your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty, until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. So she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord which he spoke through Elijah. Now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick, and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. And so she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. He said to her, Give me your son. Then he took him from her bosom and carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself out upon the child three times and called to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. This is the word of the Lord. 
Elijah is the prophet of God. And Elijah has on him the spirit of Elisha, or Elias, uh, the name of one of my uh, more recently born grandchildren, Elias. And Elijah is a notorious prophet because he was a prophet at the time of the greatest wickedness of the nation of Israel. Elias and Elijah have many honors. Uh, Elias, Elisha, is one of only two that were translated from this earth directly to God's presence, the other one being Enoch. Elijah is um, the one that was on top of the Mount of Transfiguration. He had the honor of being with Jesus up on top of that mountain. And uh, Matthew Henry says that he was the greatest of the prophets. Um, there are a number of things that distinguish him, but here we have a quite distinctive moment where uh, because of his calling down the judgment of God on the nation of Israel, Israel is without rain and is in a deep drought <coughs> and therefore a deep famine. The king at the time is King Ahab. And those of you that might not know how wicked Ahab is, you do know how wicked his wife was. Because nobody, there are people I know who have named their daughters Rahab. But I have yet to hear of a Christian mother who's named her daughter Jezebel. Jezebel is maybe the, the most repulsive figure in all scripture. And her death is as ugly a curse from God as ever was given to anybody that we know in history. If you don't know about it, go to the Bible and read. And so here you have this man Ahab and his wife Jezebel. And they are over the nation, and the nation is every bit as wicked as they are. Now, how wicked were they? Well, Ahab actually uh, did not just not worship the true God exclusively, but Ahab actually, up there in Samaria, he built a temple to Baal. The, 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 the terrible, wicked, demonic God of the Canaanites. He actually built one in his kingdom. And then he built an altar. He constructed an altar for Baal. And he sacrificed to Baal. And another thing he did is that he actually made Asherah. Now, what were Asherah? Well, you can go online and you can read about them. You can see pictures of them. They'll remind you of the, the repulsive gods of the Hindus today. It was the goddess it's what much of the Western world worships now, the, 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 the sexual fertility principle, okay? And so he made these a sheriff for himself. And despite the fact that he was in the line of the kings who descended from, directly from the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who the only true God had revealed himself to them as Jehovah, Yahweh. God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, here he is bowing down to a woman, a woman goddess, 
and to a statue and an image of sex and fertility. Okay? And so God judged them. Now, how did God judge them? Well, God had Elijah go and say to them, and he didn't say it privately. He, he wasn't like one of these wusses that goes into a closet and sticks a needle in a doll to get their next-door neighbor voodoo, you know. This guy actually went as public as he could directly to the king and told the king what was going to happen. And so from then on, when the rains didn't come, now normally you know that our God is a merciful God, and because our God is merciful, normally what the Bible says is what? It says that rain, what? It falls on the just and the unjust. But they had gotten to the point where the prophet of God went to the king and he said, I am from now on not allowing any rain nor any dew to follow on this kingdom. And they live at a time that's very different from ours because we have global trade, national trade. We have different zones of climate in our own nation, you know, and we have trains and trucks and, you know, you can even buy roses from, like, Colombia, South America, right? But not that. The minute rain didn't come, they live close to the soil. And that caused it to go into a famine. And so here this prophet of God comes into the king. He says, for your wickedness, there will be neither rain nor dew. And they begin to starve. Now, how bad has it gotten? Well, it's gotten so bad that what we read at the beginning of the text is that this widow is out there picking up sticks at the gate to make the final meal for her and her child. It's very interesting that it says that this, uh, it says about Ahab in verse 33 of the previous chapter, it says, Ahab also made the Asherah, so this is the fertility goddess, right? And thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now that's saying something. That includes Manasseh. And our text begins with, this is the context. It says, now Elijah the Tishbite, who was actually, this is before our text, it's the first verse of the 17th chapter. Elijah the, Elijah the Tishbite, who was the settlers of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there will be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. You know, I'm just noticing it's Elijah, it's not Elisha. And I have been saying Elisha. Sorry. All right. You have to keep them straight in your brain, right? Do as I do, not as I say. All right? The first principle of fatherhood, do as I do, not as I say. Oh, no, wait. Yeah, yeah. do as I say, not as I do. Don't you just wish you were up here and you could, like, speak my thoughts for me? <laughs> I'm sorry. Now, 
This was the condition of Israel at this time, and we see the terrible suffering the famine was causing by the beginning of the passage that she is ready to make the final meal and to feed him and then to die. And it says the word of the Lord came to him at that precise moment, and God said to Elijah, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and stay there. Behold, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. Verses 8 and 9. Sidon is the one place that we have a record of Jesus going to speak and to do his ministry to Gentiles. The only place. So Sidon is outside of Israel. Sidon is Gentile. Sidon is dirty. Not only that, but Sidon is the place, the homeland of Jezebel. Okay? And he tells Elijah to leave Israel and to go out among the Gentiles, the filthy Gentiles, not just filthy, but filthy like Jezebel, that that's where she's from. And he says, I want you to go there, and I will provide for you there. And then she tells him, I will provide for you by means of a widow. Now, it might help you to think of me going, for instance, to Rachel's house, right? And to ask Rachel to provide for me. Does this give you a picture? It's weird. Why would God send his mighty prophet outside of Israel to the Gentiles, to the land of Jezebel, to have a widow provide for him? It is man's job to provide for woman. It is a prophet's job to provide for everyone. It it is not the job of a widow to provide for Elijah, you know? Think about this. It's weird. And so what does he do? Well, he says to God, hey, this is weird. You know, I can't go and, and like, you know, be a, what would you call it? A What's the word, the common word for it? A leech, yeah, Rachel said it, yeah. You know, I can't go be a leech on Rachel. (laughs) For heaven's sakes, that's, it's awful for her, it's awful for me, it's awful for us. You know, it would be the worst possible thing. But he doesn't argue with God. Instead, he leaves God's people and he goes among the Gentiles, specifically, he goes to Jezebel's home. It says, verse 10, so he arose. And he went to Zarephath. And it says, when he came to the gate of the city, behold, a widow was there gathering sticks. So just like God said, right? And he knew who it was right away. Now what does he do? Well, you remember the woman at the well with Jesus? He does the same thing Jesus did, which is that he asked her for water. A widow was there gathering, and he called to her and he said, Please, get me a little water in a jar that I may drink. Now, this woman had grown up listening to Helen Reddy. And her response was, I am woman. Hear me roar. In numbers too big to ignore. Any of you know the song? It's real big in my day, which was back when dinosaurs were roaming the earth. 
And with that song, the women's movement got a good push forward. You know, it was back at the time when Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, woman, Simone de Beauvoir, was watching him sleep around with women, so she wrote a feminist track. You know, I lived through those days, and I have seen a, a terrible loss of femininity in this country. And women now are determined to be strong. And women are strong. I'll tell you, there is nobody in this church as strong as Rachel. Rachel, who when I tried to help her once said, no, I do not want that. And if you knew why, you would be so strengthened. Well, this woman, she knew what it was to be a woman. And even though he wasn't her wife, and so I suppose, strictly speaking, no woman ever has to say yes to any man other than her husband. That's what all the evangelicals teach us. But somehow, she managed to say yes to this stranger. Not just a stranger, but a filthy Jew. Honestly, you know. She goes to get him water. <laughs> it's like, has she never heard of women's lip? You know? This is unbelievable. But I shouldn't point this out in the text because, you know, I mean, it's just my hobby horse and nobody here needs to hear that from me, right? Danny, you don't need to hear that from me, right? No, no, no. The woman says yes. And then to add insult to injury, <laughs> he then asks her for something up with which she can't put. And what is it? Well, she's willing to give him water because that water will not threaten her life or the life of her child. But she will not give him her food. She will not do it. He then says to her, please get me a little water. And as she was going to get it, verse 11, he called to her and said, please bring me a piece of bread in your hand. <laughs> now, those of you who are women, even if you haven't had children yet, picture it. This is her last meal, and then she will die with her child. And now he wants her to give him that food. And if you're a man and you don't know this, let me tell you, you, even if your wife tells you she loves you all the time, she really doesn't. What she really loves are her children. Okay? She puts up with you so that she can love her children. And the minute she has children, as a matter of fact, even before she ever has children, she will love you as long as you don't get between her and her children. And so here Elijah gets between her and her child. Now, why would I say that when she's going to eat too? Well, I don't want to be indelicate, but if you ever read through the Bible, you know that when famine hits, one of the things that happens is that people begin to eat children. This is in Scripture. And this woman, because she's godly and because she's a mother, she is not going to allow herself to die before her son dies. Do you understand this? Because she will never allow her son to be harmed by anybody. 
And so she's not being selfish and saying, I'm going to eat and my son is going to eat. <laughs> she will not live one moment shorter than her son because she's going to protect him to the very death. And so she'll eat, he'll eat. And guess who won't? Elijah won't. And she tells Elijah this. She said, as the Lord your God lives, in other words, she's gravitas. She is woman, hear her roar. As the Lord your God lives. I have no bread, only a handful of flour in the bowl and a little oil in the jar, and behold, I am gathering a few sticks that I may go in and prepare for me and my son that we may eat it and die. Now, it's a very delicate, feminine, motherly way of saying no, isn't it? <laughs> she didn't actually get the words no out of her mouth. But I think Elijah heard no. Don't you? Don't you think he heard that? And it's so pathetic. She's a widow with no one to care for her. She has a son who is her dependent. She is preparing their last meal before they die. And then, if that weren't pathos enough, listen to her words. She says, only a handful of flour. Then she says, a little oil. And then she says, a few sticks. And the life is leaving her. You see it. You hear it. Now, God is God. You remember my mother once said that? God is God. And here we see God being God. Because what does Elijah say to her? Listen, there is not a man in this room who would not say the opposite of what Elijah said. Every single man in this room would have said to her, you go ahead and you make that bread and you and your son eat and then there will be more. And when there's more, would you please give me whatever comes after you eat, right? That's what every one of us would say. Not one of us would ask her to give us that last bit of oil and bread and the few sticks. Not one of us would do that. Okay? That's not what Elijah does. Elijah said to her, don't, don't fear. <laughs> yeah, right. She's about to die with her son. Don't fear. Don't fear. You know? Do not fear. Go. Do as you have said. But make, make me a little bread cake from it. First, <laughs> and bring it out to me, and what's the word? Afterward. Afterward. You may make one, may, may. I thought you said, mother, may I? <laughs> Afterward, you may make one for yourself and for your son. You know, I can, I can make jokes out of this and laugh about it, but listen, this is no laughing matter. This woman is being asked to put her faith in God. What is being asked from her is raw faith. And it's not faith in the Asherah, and it's not faith in the Baals that she and her countrymen worship. It's faith in the God of the hated Israelites, the Jews. And God is not interested in making compromises with us and the gods of our parents. Nope. Nope. 
God specializes in separating us from our relatives and our loved ones because that's the place where our faith is seen. She was being asked to separate herself and trust the God of the Jews. Do you understand this? God's not multicultural. I hate to tell you this. God's monocultural. And the culture's Yahweh. But not only that, she's being asked to separate herself, not just from the idolatry and the gods of her nation, she's being asked to separate herself and her son from the prophet and to acknowledge his superiority, not because Elijah's superior, right? But because Elijah is the man of God, of the only true God. I'm sure if Elijah had been able to make a compromise with her that looked gentle, he would have done it. But you remember what Jesus said to the woman at the well. She tried to do the same kind of trip with him of trying to get him to be multicultural, you know, well, we say this and you say this. Remember what Jesus said? Jesus said, no, salvation is of the Jews. That's what he said to the Samaritans. No multiculturalism when it comes to the gods of the nations and our relatives. Nope, nope, nope. Because not because we, I keep explaining to foreigners who come to worship here, it's not because we as Americans are superior, it's because God is superior. And every father who stands in the place of God's fatherhood has to defend his honor and his authority, not because he isn't a screw-up, but because he stands in the place of God. We must never trade the honor and exclusivity of God for the sake of our own appearance in front of people that are judgmental and rebellious. Do you understand this? We just can't do that. And so he says, you know, okay, are you all back? Fasten your safety belts. It gets worse than this. But right here, we're dealing with the fact that he says, you go use your last oil and your last flour, and you bring that food to me. And then he says this. For thus says the Lord God of Sidon. No, they're in Sidon. And so this is a nationalistic statement. For thus says the Lord God of hated Israel, the bowl of flour shall not be exhausted, nor shall the jar of oil be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain on the face of the earth. Okay, so here she is. (laughs) She's at the end of her life, and she has this little boy. And he's so little that he's still at her bosom. And it seems almost certain that this is her only child. And she has no husband. And she has no servant because she wouldn't have been out at the gate collecting twigs if she was a rich woman. She would have sent somebody in her house to get And she has no money because she has no wood. She's collecting scraps out at the gate. And she's particularly pathetic because she's at the gate doing it. It's the most public place in the city. And there's the decision. She's told not to be afraid. And I imagine that she would have been willing to give Elijah her last flour and oil. Are you with me? But she's a mother. And she's being asked to give the last meal of her son to this man of God. 
and she's being asked to trust the God of Israel. So does she do it? Does she do it? Listen, I tell you, there is not one woman in this country that would write a blog post about how she should do it. Don't take me for a fool. I know this world I live in, and I know it's sin. And every single woman would write a blog post about how abusive of authority this prophet was. You realize what would have happened if she had refused? We don't have it recorded in Scripture. But I don't think any of us have any question what would have happened if she had refused. You know what would have happened? She would have died, and her son would have died. God is God. God is God. God is God. You are not God. I am not God. Your mother isn't God, and your father isn't God, and your grandpa isn't God. And Billy Graham certainly wasn't God. And God, his thoughts, he says, are higher than our thoughts. And his ways than our ways. He says, as high as the heaven is above the earth, so high are my thoughts above your thoughts. He calls our thoughts stupidity. He says his stupidity is wiser than our wisdom. God is God. And God is not bothered by us and our puny judgments. He just isn't. You know, I'm, I'm very aware right now of how I appear to all of you. <laughs> how can you not be aware when you're 64, you've got gray hair, you're adipose, you're 6'2", and it would be so easy for all of you to think that this is about me. And this is the problem with your generation, is you always think that it's personal. You never get out of this, this insane vortex of black holishness, which is yourself. And so you think it's about me. And so I suppose it would be better if I had Mary Lee come up. She's skinny. And she's a woman. And she could talk to you about this in a way that maybe, maybe then you'd be willing to listen because she's a woman. <laughs> you know? And it's so much nicer to hear hard truths than women. Like Angela Merkel, this, you know. You know, and what's her name? Uh, the Iron Lady. They never called her the Iron Maiden. <laughs> you know. <laughs> what was her name? Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher, yeah. Why don't you preach? It would come so much better from a woman. Or at least a skinny young man with skinny jeans. Listen, he told her, don't be afraid. 
It had nothing to do with him. And he said, feed me. And it had nothing to do with him. It had to do with the God of Israel. And that woman was a mother and Eve and feminine. And you know what she did? (laughs) She went and made him a meal. And she fed him. And guess what? He got his dog back. She got her, her pickup back. She got her job back. She got, you know, what happens when you play a country music song backwards. You know? It all came back. It all got good. Because then, to the end of the drought, her oil never ran out. And her flower just kept, kept, kept feeding them. It says, verse 15, she went and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her house, and he and her household ate for many days. The bowl of flour was not exhausted, nor did the jar of oil become empty, according to the word of the word, which he spoke through Elijah. Now, okay, so can we end the story there? Because, you know, there are a lot of applications. You know, it's been helpful, hasn't it? So far, we have what Rita Cuffey used to refer to as a helpful thought for the week. Okay, but unfortunately the text keeps going and it's this latter part of the text that David Carell wanted me to preach on. Okay, so let's keep going, but you really have to fasten your safety belts now. All right, now it came about after these things that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house became sick and his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. Now again, what does every good mother live for? Mary Lee, as we've gotten older, has said to me a number of times recently that I don't take seriously enough the sin of mothers against their children. Now this is my wife saying this to me. Do you know how many bad mothers there are today? But boy, you can't say anything about it. Don't you ever say anything about bad mothers. Oh, ho, ho, ho. But look, what's the point of looking at this woman if we don't learn about motherhood? Because is this not an account about motherhood? It is. And so here, this woman, she's a mother and she lives for her child. A mother lives for her children, her nursing babies, her toddlers, her teenagers, her young adults. A woman who lives as God made her to live, lives for her descendants. She was named Eve because why? She is the mother of the living. There is no woman who is not Eve. None. Every woman who lives her sex is the mother of the living. As every father is Adam, and he bears the, res- the authority to carry out the responsibility that God has put on him. You can't escape your sex. Sorry, you just can't do it. You just can't do it. You have been marked by God as Eve or Adam, as the mother of the living or the father. This is just true. And so she is the mother of all the living. This is what she's named, 
And nothing gives her greater joy than her descendants, and it's not selfishness, let alone bondage. This is joy and peace and happiness and well-being, and completely and utterly natural, which is to say completely and utterly divine. Completely and utterly as God decreed from the beginning and continues to decree today and will continue to decree until the day his son returns in power and glory. This is womanhood, not less for the single woman. What is a widow (laughs) than for the married woman? And no less for the barren woman than for the young mother who is pregnant. All right? Woman is always and utterly mother, and this is Mother's Day. This woman, this single woman, this widow single woman, this mother of Zarephath now has holding at her breast a child who is sick and has died because his breath has left him. Did she mourn? Was she grief-stricken? Was there any comfort, let alone hope? And so she said to Elijah, verse 18, What do I have to do with you, man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. Is there anything for us to learn here? You know, the Bible says that every part of it is profitable, right? Is there anything to learn in this woman's plea? This is the kind of verse that we pass right over, and we, we, we say that it's, well, you know, it was the ancient world, and people were superstitious then. And they thought God was in everything, but we, we live post-enlightenment, which really means post-endarkenment. And because we have a scientific explanation for everything, we know God's hand wasn't in this child dying or the drought or the famine or anything. I mean, we know how famines work and we know about, you know, uh, climate cycles and, and stuff. And, you know, we, and, and, and if I don't know, there's intellectuals that know and I get to read them on the internet. And so this poor, pathetic woman who lived pre-enlightenment somehow connected the death of her son, what? To her sin. And, and, and we go, <laughs> what's that about? Come on, guys. Every single one of you, you sit there, that's what you think. Well, okay. You say you don't. But if you don't, you have to work hard to stay ahead of the avalanche. <laughs> Because there's not one person in the face of the earth that believes that the reason anybody's child dies is because of their sin. Right? I mean, every pastor in the country would fall over himself rebuking this woman and explaining to her that the death of her child has nothing to do with her sin. Please! (laughs) You know. You've probably been around that man, Tim Bailey. But you've got to stop thinking the way he thinks because he just abuses mothers with dead children. You know, poor Elijah. You can just see the influence this man's had on that woman living in in her home. 
<laughs> you know? That poor pathetic woman, she had a prophet of God in her house, and now she connects the death of her son with her sin. <laughs> Come on, guys. Come on. Come on. Come on. And so what does Elijah do? Elijah is so eager to explain to her that his God is a God of grace. It's not like those legalists out at Clearnote Church. Those moralists, those people who don't understand grace. You know, Elijah says, no, no, no. How could you even think that way? <laughs> you know, no, no, no. Okay, now listen, I'm way out on a limb. I know this. I know what you're thinking about me, okay? I'm way out on the limb, and my sister made a mistake. She and I had been on bike riding, and then we climbed this huge tree, and one limb went the whole way across this big creek, and I stayed by the trunk. But not my sister. She was in high school. She was a big girl. And so she walked the whole way out on the limb, and then she looked back at me, and she said, Tim, I'm going to jump. And she jumped, and she broke her back. And so I'm out there where my sister was, but I'm not going to jump. Does this relieve you? You don't want me to jump, do you? No. Okay, so how am I going to save myself? Because all of you are judging me now. You're all thinking, this man's a monster. Okay, I'm going to say something, and then I'm going to read you something. All across history, Every single pastor, every Roman Catholic priest, everybody who has had the Christian faith has commended this woman for connecting the death of her child with her sin. The only people who wouldn't do it are the men who claim to speak for God today. Okay? That's the truth. And you say, oh, well, prove it to me. And I say, well, I've spent my life reading dead prophets and dead pastors. And it's just a yawn across all history. But let me just read one to you. And this is a very, very tame, normal Protestant pastor from the past. All right? And here's what he says about this woman connecting it with the death of her son, with sin. He says, now, note. When God removes our comforts from use, he remembers our sins against us. Perhaps the iniquities of our youth, though long since past. In other words, he's lying for the fact that this may have been a sin when she was a child. All right? And then he says this. Are you ready? This is the incomplete sentence. I'm not cutting anything out of it. He says, our sins are the death of our children. Our sins are the death of our children. When God thus remembers our sins against us, he designs thereby to make us remember them against ourselves and repent of them. If I had not grown up watching my children lose children to death three times in my childhood, I don't know if I would have the strength to preach this to you. But I did watch it. 
And what I saw was the constant, explicit statement of my parents who said again and again that they were never as sure of the love of God as when they walked away from the fresh grave of one of their children. What do you think? Do you think that God discovers the death of our children? Oh my, look at what just happened to Joe and Mary Lou. Who would worship a God like that? You remember what Job's wife tried to get him to do when he lost his children? He said, curse God and die. Do you remember what Job said? Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept diversity? Listen, there's no middle ground. Either you believe that God loves you and your children, and you follow him into the adversity, yes, including the, the adversity of your children dying, or your God is not God. You're worshiping an idol. You watch what Elijah says here. Elijah says, in verse 20, well, first let's read 18 and 19. She said this to Elijah, then 19, he said to her, give me your son. He took him from her bosom. That's how we know it was a little, little one. And carried him up to the upper room where he was living and laid him on his own bed. And then, listen to what he calls out to God. He called to the Lord and he said, oh Lord my God, have you also brought calamity to the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? So you have the woman connecting it to her personally. And then you have Elijah connecting it to her personally. And listen, this is how everybody who is a Christian thinks. Because it's biblical. We always are aware that we deserve nothing good from God's hand. If I were to describe the one thing that makes certain people in this church much more godly than anybody else, do you know what it is? That's how I would describe it. I would say they always, always realize that they deserve nothing good from God's hand. To me, that's the apex of holiness. That's why at the end of his life, the Apostle Paul says, I'm the pr I am the greatest, the chief of sinners. Right? Do you deserve anything good from God's hand? I went in and visited a little baby this week, and this is going to be a Sunday where I'm not going to get done on time. All right, it went off. But I went and visited a little baby this week in the hospital. And that baby was so beautiful that I took a picture. I, you, many of you have come to your, you know I've never taken pictures of your babies, right? Okay, I took a picture of this baby. Why? I've never seen a baby as beautiful as little Eve. And I looked at it, 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 it. I looked at Nate. <laughs> then I looked at Kay. But then I looked at Eve. I mean, yes, she was a C-section baby, and that will do it to most babies. That in itself gives them a proportional, rounded, nice head. But this child is drop-dead gorgeous. 
righteous. I mean, it's like, and I look at Katie, and I look at Nate, and I look at the baby. The baby was lying on the bed. I look at Katie. I took a picture. Every parent, when God gives them a little one, they cannot believe that God has given them a child. It's unbelievable. Not one of us has ever deserved a child from God. We're not prepared. We're not good enough. And he gives us our first child when we don't even know how to be a mom and dad. Now, I look at young punks when they get given children, and I just think, what is God doing? I mean, that's what every older person thinks when you guys have babies. I, I'm serious. You know, and then you remember that that's, you were worse. <laughs> oh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> if you'd seen Mary Lee and me when we had Heather, <laughs> yikes. Right? Well, you weren't there. Every single one of us must realize that God is God. My father used to say that God gives us little children as a loan, and he can call in his loan anytime he wants. They do not belong to us. They're on loan from God. And he will use them any way he wants in our life. And God is God. God doesn't get confused the difference between time and eternity. If you've ever lost a child, you know the thought that goes through your mind, which is that child is now safe in the arms of Jesus. The last request that my mother-in-law had, and I will try not to cry now the way I cried in the first service, but there you go again. So in the hospital room, what did my mother-in-law want done? She wanted us, as she's dying, she wanted us to pray for her grandchildren and her children and for their souls. And then you know what she did for her funeral? She asked all her descendants, and what were there? 120 of us. She asked us all to stand up in the funeral. You know what she asked us to do? She asked us to sing, though he giveth or he taketh, God his own, he ne'er forsaketh. His the loving purpose only, to preserve them pure and holy. I remember visiting her shortly before she died, and I remember, you know how a mother will let out an exclamation without knowing she's doing it. I remember listening to her as she sat down after dinner in her living room, and she just said this. She said, oh, the grandchildren. It was apropos to nothing. Nobody was talking about the grandchildren. 
And then she had us up, all get up and sing Children of the Heavenly Father. Why do you think she was doing that? It was her last attempt to save the souls of her precious children and her descendants. There is nothing stronger on this earth than motherhood. And she was a mother to the end. And I have never known a stronger person in my life than my mother-in-law. And I've told you before, she is the reason I hate feminism. I hate it because it tramples on that woman. And I'm sorry, men, but if you love something, you have to punch to defend it. And I'd be punching. I hope it go down punching. And so Elijah, it's apparent that he came to love this little child like his own son. He takes him up to the bedroom, and he gets as close as he possibly can to him. He lies down on him. And he showed God that this child had to be raised from the dead because he was one with this child. Why on top of him? And he cried out to God to raise this child from the dead. Now I'm going to do my best to get through this without crying, okay? When my older brother Danny died at the age of four or five, I don't know which it was, I was a year younger, he and I were like this, and when he died, I began to pray every night at devotions that he would be raised from the dead, okay? Every night at devotions with my parents sitting there, hemorrhaging, I prayed that God would raise him from the dead. And I think it's accurate to say that the reason that I have never been a prayer warrior is that I have always borne some resentment to God for not answering that prayer. And nobody ever told me that that prayer was wrong. Until this morning. <sighs> Sorry. And I'm, I'm preparing to preach, and stupid me, you know, I read Matthew Henry. What am I thinking? He's dead! But he, he lives on. And I read Matthew Henry saying that this is the first occurrence of a man praying to be raised from the dead. And then he says that, essentially he says it would have been wrong for anybody else other than Elijah to ask for this. And all of a sudden I see it was wrong for me to ask for my brother to be raised from the dead. It was not precocious. It was impertinent. It was foolish. Because why? Because I was not Elijah. And I know you're thinking, well, and James it says Elijah was a man just like you. But I wasn't even a man. I was a little punk. And all of a sudden I realized that we approach God and we take off our shoes. We don't go flaunting into the presence of God 
and tell him that he has to do what we ask him to do. Even if we're a child. Now, I'm not saying children shouldn't pray. But you as parents have to teach them that there are some prayers which really it would be much better if the widow, what? You know what I'm going to say. If the widow, what? If the widow got Elijah to pray. She did not do this herself. She pleaded with the man of God to go to his God. And guess what? He did it. I wish Elijah had been there in my home when Danny died, but he wasn't. And so guess what? God heard the prayers of Elijah. And this little boy raised from the dead. And it was such an unbelievable thing that when he brings this little boy to his mother, did you notice what he says? What does he say? Come on, you have to be with me. Come on, you have to be with me. Oh, that's right, you're right. Elijah said what? See, your son is alive. (laughs) If there's ever a stupid statement on the face of the earth, that's it. The kid's alive. She can see it. So why did he say that? He said it because she couldn't believe her own eyes. That's what Matthew Henry says. She couldn't believe her own eyes. And then we see, then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. One final word about pride and humility. God never, ever responds positively to pride. He will not do it. He resists the proud. So if you're a woman who's roaring, if you're turning your back on your femininity and your motherhood, and you're determined to show men that you roar, you will become a thing that is so hideous and ugly that only the godly will know how ugly you are. You will not see it yourself. You will be incapable of seeing it. But everyone else who's godly will see it. And the same thing is true of those of you who are men who want to turn your back on what it means to be a man. If you're so proud that you want to show that you're a hipster and that, you have, that you're vain and that you keep track of, of, of the styles, you want to turn your back on your manhood. You will become a thing so ugly that the righteous will not be able to bear looking at you. And it's because you're proud. When we reject God's dispensations in our life, whatever they are, whether they're our sexuality, whether it's the death of our child, when we stiffen our back against God and we say, I will not cry and I will not bend and I will not bow, always we come under the judgment of God. 
and we lose the beauty that God gave us. But when we bow and when we cry and when we plead, do you know what this widow, you know the one thing she had to take to God? It's really interesting. The one thing she had to take to God was her sins. (laughs) She went to God with her sins. She didn't argue. She just took her sins to God. And that's the one thing we have to take to God is our sins. (laughs) We take our sins to God because God vindicates sinners. He vindicates the righteous, but it's never our righteousness we have. It's the righteousness of Jesus, and God is merciful to those of us who go to him. And so I want, to, I want to plead with you. Bow before God, because if you don't, he'll break you. You'll start breaking in this life, and then you'll be broken eternally. But if you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will lift you up. He will lift you up. You know what I'm thinking right now? Do you have any idea what I'm thinking right now? If you'd watch my eyes, you'd know what I'm thinking right now. What did my eyes just do? It began to look from person to person in this congregation and to see their humility. And so I smiled because this is a church filled with people. And the only thing holding us together is that we've humbled ourselves under God's mighty hand. That really is the unity of this church. And of course it makes me happy. (laughs) How could it not make me happy, right? All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this widow who is our hero, our heroine. We thank you for her faith. We thank you for her confession of sin. And Father, we give you glory for giving her back. This, This widow mother for giving her back her son. All praise to you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, from eternity past to the present to eternity to come. Amen.